Welcome to A Shot in the Arm. We're a podcast about global health and human rights. Well, this episode is being recorded after such a busy week. What with articles of impeachment being brought against the current president of the USA and the UN 2019 Conference on Climate Change in Madrid that was a frustrating, pointless effort with the dying potted plants in the conference halls getting more attention than the cynically and meaningless negotiated text coming out of a meeting. And in the UK, oh, the Labour Party being so thoroughly defeated in the UK election. As regular listeners and viewers know, I'm a strong supporter of multilateral collaboration and have very little time for atomistic nationalistic movements that we are having to face now. Collaboration and multilateral action is absolutely essential in improving access to health around the world. And as we Remainers, the very many pro-European Brits that we're called, and as we're having to lick our wounds from this, from this election that absolutely guarantees Brexit and we wonder what on earth happens next, well, the words of New York Times columnist David Brooks provide some reassure, reassurance that for the majority of the world's voters in democratic elections, good politics is simply the muddled way we settle differences with people we disagree with. And I think that's very helpful. Except, what do we do in this one fundamental area that is already affecting our lives and is poised to revolutionise every aspect of our existence? I'm talking about climate change. The words of the Chilean chair of the uh, climate change conference in Madrid resonate when she said that rich countries had polluted and that poor countries would have to take the brunt. That was unfair, she said, but it still meant we had to get over it. It still meant we had to act and act now. It was always my plan that this episode would look at the global health implications of climate change, but the failures in Madrid make the need for the global health movement to understand and engage more effectively with the environment movement become really very pressing. And it's worth pausing to reflect for a moment on just what those linkages are. One of those WHO interagency climate reports that so infuriates some US politicians from the early 2000s could not be clearer when they set out really the three kinds of changes the direct change caused by extreme weather and uh, environmental change. Secondly, the consequences in demoralised populations through economic dislocation, environmental decline and conflict. And then finally, the effects of the spread of vector-borne disease. Well, in this episode, we're going to focus on the immediate the immediate pulmonary effects of climate change, and we'll come back to the impact on infectious disease at a later episode. Although I would say that there has been some good news this week. We've had the first conference on the Nipah virus that was held in Singapore, and we have some really terrific news coming from Rwanda and Johnson & Johnson, who are collaborating on containing the Ebola outbreak on Rwanda's borders with the Democratic Republic of Congo, with the use of donated supplies of J&J's experimental uh, Ebola vaccine. So, this episode is on those other immediate effects. And it's a serious concern for residents all over the world living right now with airborne pollution. People like me, 
resident of California who's been impacted by the wildfires last year and this year. So just what are the health and human rights implications of climate change? To help us make sense of what's going on, I'm honoured to be joined by two guests this week. First, we meet Eliza Nemza, and then she and I will be joined by Hirel Tipperni, an MD who is running for Congress in Arizona. So first, I'm delighted now to be joined by Eliza Nemza, who is a geoscientist and, in her own words, a climate strategist. So, Eliza, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. Thanks for having me, Ben. I'm excited to be here. Well, likewise, and we've been really keen to get you on the show for a while. Uh, You and I met at, uh, I guess, an event for progressive fundraisers at NextGen during the preparations for the midterms. And I, I do want to come back to your political action in a minute. But First, can I ask you a little bit about yourself, about your upbringing upbringing and how you got into geoscience? Sure. Well, it's not uh, it's not the normal story. So I was born and raised in the concrete jungle of New York City um, and had never been hiking or slept in a tent or seen mountains. Um, when I was 16, I met a young woman who had told me about this crazy summer trip she did. And it sounded amazing. She showed me pictures. I signed up. I spent the summer backpacking and um, rafting and mountaineering, and my life was changed forever. So I decided that I wanted to study natural science, earth science. Um, I didn't totally have it figured out. I thought maybe marine biology. Um, I was always a science nerd. But after that trip, um, I was was definitely, I knew I was going to be some kind of an earth scientist. It's an incredible thing, isn't it, when you actually get to spend time in nature without any of the the modern day advantages. Um, I confess I only went hiking myself, backpacking a couple of years ago, but it has changed me completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't go and change my study as a, as, as a, as a result of that. So yeah. what did you do? Well, so I, ha- I was always kind of really into math and science. Um, and then when I got the course catalog from my college, I decided to get way out of the city and go to a, a rural college in Northwest Massachusetts. Um, I got the course catalog and read about geology and I was just signed up. I was signed up to be a geology major before I stepped foot on campus. You, you then ended up at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, is that where you did your PhD? My master's and my PhD. Yeah. So after my undergrad, I decided I had a specialization within geology pretty early on, too. I was interested in faults, faults, fault mechanics, earthquake faults, Um, but the mechanics and the dynamics and then ultimately more applications, earthquakes. Um, And so I went to study that at the University of Washington in Seattle. One of the other things uh, about you is that you are very passionate about service. Uh, how did you come to be so passionate about that? Is that something that, that you know you learned from your parents or grandparents, or or was it something that you learned from seeing the effect of changes in the climate in the climate? I think the answer is that that came from becoming a parent, um, <laughs> which wasn't hadn't always been in my plans. So yeah. I was pretty ambitious in graduate school, and I, I wasn't planning to have kids. And in fact, I had mentors in graduate school. Warn me, don't have kids. If you have one, only have one. It's going to detract from your research and this, you know, holy grail goal of academic prestige. Um, And it was during my postdoc. So after I got my PhD, I went to Lisbon, Portugal, and I did a really interesting postdoc 
um, looking at earthquake hazard maps that were continuous across continental Europe. Um, and in my downtime, I would go to the beach. And my husband was with me, and he's a big surfer. And I'm not a surfer. And I was really bored on the beach. <laughs> Um, and I looked around and the, the families with young kids, they weren't bored. And that's kind of when I got the notion into my head to have kids. But it was really becoming a parent and thinking about their health and thinking about their health in a global context and thinking about all kids. And I think it kind of softened my kind of really quantitative analytical mind into thinking about humanity more and kind of letting that in more. Yeah. And then, you know, you and I connect in the, the fall of um, of 2018, having, I suppose, two years earlier had, uh, like so many of us, having had a, a, a political awakening. And I think there's a, a sort of a joke doing the rounds, you know, what, what, what were we doing with our lives before November 16? And how did it change after that? So, so before we get to the political awakening, what were you doing then, uh, before November 2016, and the, uh, the presidential election results? Right. So after my postdoc, I was working for a large engineering firm in their seismic hazards group doing um, kind of applied uh, earthquake hazard research, um, looking at the earthquake hazards um, to critical structures, bridges, dams, nuclear you know, power plants, you name it, um, and the earthquake risk specifically. Increasingly, my work was not on natural earthquakes, but on induced earthquakes. Mm. So from fracking... Uh, you know, injection of um, of water yes. for the fracking process, so the wastewater. And so that was starting to cause more and more earthquakes, stressing people out across the country. So increasingly, my clients were oil and gas. And it was right around, uh, I think it was 2017, the fall, we had the really bad wildfires yeah. um, here in Northern California, and we were choked with smoke. And that's when I kind of had my eureka moment, like, wait a second, I'm kind of helping oil and gas companies maximize their profit, mitigate their earthquake risk. Meanwhile, burning of fossil fuels is making it so we can't breathe. It's making wildfires worse. It's making everything worse. My kids have asthma. We have an EPA that's basically with oil and gas lobbyists at the helm, like, I'm out. I've got to switch gears. And, and this, I suppose, gets us to the idea of being a climate strategist. Can you tell us what you, what you mean by that, how you define your role? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm not a climate scientist, but I have a PhD in earth and space science. So what I realized is having gone to grad school with climate scientists, I knew a whole lot more about climate scientists, climate science than most people. Um, and then I started paying attention to the politics of it and realized, of course, it's a political problem. Anyone will tell you that. Um, last week was the big annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union, the world's largest um, international meeting of earth and space scientists. There were 27,000 scientists. And one of these refrains you kept hearing is that this is a political problem. So I noticed that. And then I made some other observations around how we're not really allocating resources in an optimal way to deal with this problem. There's a lot of interesting, important science going on, on you know the earth science side, on the health science side, epidemiologists are doing important work, policy, there's important work going on in policy and innovation and not enough connective tissue. I started to just kind of make these, you know, assessments of the landscape. And so I decided I could insert myself as connective tissue. Yes, it's funny you say that. I'm, it, perhaps in a very English way, I, I describe it as sort of joining the dots. That's right. And that's how that's I see right. my role in, in global right. health. But that um, uh, meeting in the U.S. was taking place, I suppose, just as the 
uh, UN climate change meeting, COP, was taking place in Madrid, which right. was an abject failure and, and thoroughly frustrating. And I guess one of the things that it raised with me that I, I wanted to put to you, um, this sense of a lot of young people beginning to be very direct activists and, and leading up to this extension, ex, sorry, extinction rebellion movement. And I just wondered what your sense of that is and what you see that is. It's enormously important. It's enormously impactful. And it's it's just such a tragedy that it's come to that. I mean, because it's not fun. I call myself like an unwitting activist. I don't want to be an activist. That's not fun. You know, all of these kids out there, they don't want to be stressing out about their futures. I mean, eco-anxiety is real. Like there's just, it's just a really huge challenge to grapple with this stuff. So huge amount of respect to all of these young climate activists because they're really moving the needle in a big way and in, they're not having fun doing it. No. I mean, do, do, do you think that changing the way we are at least speaking about the subject? I mean, you know, Greta Thunberg being named Times Person of the Year, a huge achievement. Um, but uh, and, and this is where I think there are some interesting similarities with global health. The risk is that the advocacy gets lost in the substance and we, instead of turning the world on to our issues, we actually turn them off. Oh, there's nothing I can do or it's bigger than me or neither me nor my grandchildren are going to be around for any of this. A lot so, of people think that. Yeah. So so what lessons have you learned um, in in trying to make it relevant and now and to and, and to get society to start taking taking action now? Yeah. Well, and and this is very much full circle to why I'm here. So I realized pretty early on that this is, you know, there's a lot of science going on. This is a complicated problem, but this is a social justice issue. This is a human rights issue, but this is a public health crisis, right? Right. And I mean, I realized that early on and no one's talking about that. I mean, you know, relatively speaking, that's subdued in the discourse. And a lot of people care about health. I mean, they care about their health. They care about their family's health. Why are we not framing the climate crisis as a public health issue? Why are we not doing a better job of speaking about? And by the way, why aren't we ever talking about air pollution? Yeah. I mean, air pollution is not as politicized as climate change, you know, and yet a lot of the solutions are the same. Yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and some of the and we'll come on to the, 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 the more direct connections between health and, and climate change. There's one other thing about the advocacy and political movement that I think is interesting uh, and, and something that global health shares with the with climate change, and that is the naysayers. Uh, and particularly in the AIDS movement, we've had, oh my gosh, 30 years of AIDS denialists here in the Bay Area. Um, uh, the former president of South Africa, Thabo Mbeki, had a, had a panel of AIDS denialists. And, and as a result, treatment was de denied for you know, almost five years for, for you know, life-saving treatment, people who could have been saved. And, and I just you know, wonder whether there is, there is something about the fact that you know, we're trying to create a sense of emergency over something that, uh, an event, if you like, that takes place over decades. And, and in the case of the environment and looking at the beauty of California, for example, uh, changes to the way our rocks and others and, and, and our climate has, has evolved, you know, these have taken hundreds of millions of years. And so how do we get people to start paying attention now? Yeah, well, you know, I just looked this up because I think that's so crazy. There's this great group at Yale University called Yale Climate Communications. They do a lot of public opinion polling. They most recently updated their uh, climate opinion maps uh, for 2019 in September. So they're pretty recent. 
the numbers are staggering. Like adults that believe that there's scientific consensus on climate change, 52% of American adults. And guess what? There's scientific consensus, right? So they wow. have this refrain that they've developed. I mean, the numbers are crazy. Like it's ha- six, 67% think it's happening. 53% think it's caused by human activities, which it unequivocally is. Mm. I mean, you know, 52% think there's scientific consensus. I'm, I'm going to repeat that because there is scientific consent. I mean, so they have this refrain, scientists agree, it's real, it's us, it's bad, and there's hope. And they're just like, keep repeating those five yeah. things. Yeah, you feel as if we are a frog in a, a tub of water that is getting progressively warmer. Um, so, so before coming on to what we do, yep. how big is the crisis we face? Oh, so the problem is answering your question without making you shut down. <laughs> Seriously, I mean that's 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 yes. the challenge we all have, right? Because it's really bad, right? But there's hope, right? So that's why that's those are you know that's the sequence of those messages. It's bad and there's hope. So tell us the bad and then we'll do the hope. It's it's bad. I mean, it, you know, on one level, all of this was predicted by Exxon scientists. Mm-hmm. I mean, there saw an internal memo from the 60s. I think it was 1960 or even 1959. I mean, it, it's clearly oil and gas industry have, have predicted the warming that we're seeing. Um, but, you know, the, the effects are, are worse than anticipated. And there are these feedback loops that have already been mm. set in motion. And, you know, species extinction, you name it. This is it's a long list. But, you know, people are hurting. People are dying. People are getting sick. People are migrating from parts of the globe that are becoming unlivable. You know, we have a huge climate refugee crisis. Yes. We have a few food scarcity problem on our hands, crazy droughts, extreme weather events, you know, wildfires. It's bad, but the problem is how do you, you know, you need to say that sentence and you need to say it in a way that doesn't make you shut down and not want to act. You just gave a speech at Google and you you set out a strategy of concrete things that, that could be done. And I, I was really moved by that. And I wondered if you could just share with us, you know, top line. Okay, and here's the hope bit. Here's the hope bit. Um, we have a decade to take major climate action and really really stop burning fossil fuels because that is what is causing the warming that we're seeing and stop putting methane into the atmosphere and basically move to a clean energy economy you know we can fuel all the glo- all the globe's power needs with wind water and solar period so we need to be doing that we need to be getting there as fast as we possibly can um yeah so it, it, and that's you know it's it's complicated but it, it get back to the fact that this is a political problem, right? Everyone who studies this knows that this is a political problem. So my two takeaways to the group at Google, who it's this group that's focused on uh, measuring carbon dioxide emissions from point sources from power plants using satellites. And I, I was asked to place their work in a, in a larger context. And I basically pointed out, like, you know, see through the whole life cycle of your work. You know, it's very important that you don't, I mean, because otherwise data is nothing if it doesn't turn into action. Um, I gave some concrete examples. I mean, here in San Francisco, here in the state of California, there are school protocols developed by state agencies that tell school administrators when to bring their kids in um, Mm. at certain thresholds of air quality, right? And they're not health protective. They're not even as health protective as the protocols in Washington state. And furthermore, I received a letter from my kid's school administrator saying that if the air exceeds 100, it's now in the unhealthy for sensitive groups category, 
bring them in for recess and lunch. Unequivocal, bring them in. But if it exceeds 150, now it's unhealthy for everyone, consider bringing them in for athletic practice and PE. I mean, that's like inconsistent. So I had a meeting with them and they said, oh yeah, maybe that was a typo. So what I said to this group at Google is you do as much research and collect as much data as you want. But if this ends up having a typo in the implementation, we're in really big trouble. Absolutely. And it shows the kind of attention that we all have to spend yes, on this. Yes, that's right. So it reminds me of a British politician who was a doctor, uh, David Owen, who in the 1980s was talking about how to stop the uh, arms war between the West and the Soviet Union-led East. And he thought of this as, you know, taking deliberate steps back out of a room and then closing the door rather than running to the running to the door tripping over and setting off all the uh, uh, alarms and the the nuclear devices. Um, Is there some way, do you think, that we can eliminate in a certain period of time the human causes of climate change without bringing global society to a halt? Yes. Yes. So, I mean, uh, my message to these folks was, you know, make sure that you're, you're taking action with your data and make sure that you're doing action at scale and encouraging other people to act at scale. Because this is a crisis. This is an emergency. Everyone needs to act and act at scale. The other piece was to f- kind of really focus on this connective tissue issue. You know, create a working group where people in tech are talking to people at writing policy. And then the other thing was that this is political. So we can make huge progress if we have elected officials are going to champion climate as a as the number one priority. So I think this whole thing breaks down when we retreat into our tribal corners and call this like a Democrat Republican yeah. issue. No, no, no. This has to be bipartisan. So instead of talking about electing Democrats, which I never do, I talk about electing climate champions or health champions. Um, so I think that's really important that we reframe that conversation because this being a political issue means we need to elect the people who are going to prioritize the issue. And we need to do that by making this broadly resonant. I mean, this is an issue that eclipses the other issues, right? So right now, vote for the person who's going to champion your health in every race, notwithstanding the presidential primary, which is complicated. But in every race, once there's a nominee, there's a a pro-health or a pro-climate candidate running against someone who is is not going to prioritize the issue. Vote for that person. I mean, in the short term, we need we need a majority of folks in the United States Senate who are going to champion this mm, issue. Yeah. And I'm not talking about a Democratic majority, right? I mean, I'm, we need a climate champion majority in the United States Senate. How do we get there? It's actually not very complicated, right? We we elect those. There's some important seats yeah. in play. Now, six months ago, I would have said, okay, that is just a really provo- profoundly political question. There's no getting away from it. But we are seeing change. And, you know, last week, I think it was in New Jersey, a meeting of um, agro-business folks, farmers coming together, people who would normally traditionally consider themselves Republicans saying, "Okay, we got to try and rework our our positioning on this. So uh, I I think there's probably there's probably much more we can do now. Um, I I wanted to talk a bit more about the links between uh, the climate movement and um, and global health, because I think of global health as sort of almost the canary in the cage. Yeah, because, right. yeah, we we breathe the air. Um, we're the ones that are going to be most immediately, uh, immediately affected. And I suppose it goes back to your remarks at Google saying, you know, get out of our silos. What advice would you give global health activists such as myself to say, come on over here, the warm water, let's work together? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, 
we're the ones who are going to be most affected. I think it's really important to explain. I mean, there's disproportionate groups who are going to be the most immediate, who are already. I mean, this is not a future thing. This isn't a later over there thing. This is a here and now thing. And there's groups that are disproportionately affected, right? Communities of color, low income communities, uh, children, Mm. elderly, people with pre-existing conditions. I mean, they are disproportionately impacted. And this is really, this is a, this is a social, this is a justice issue. I would say to the health community, there's 7 million deaths from air pollution every year. 7 million deaths mm. from air pollution. And and that carries a huge economic cost, right? I mean, the cost of the global economy is $225 billion in lost labor income. I mean, the overall economic cost of the health burden is in the trillions of dollars. I've heard estimates that it's in the tens of trillions of dollars. I mean, this is expensive. We Is there a price on carbon? Yeah, there's yeah. already a big price on yeah. carbon, right? And it's in our health. So I think it's really important. I don't think any of these conversations can be siloed. There always has to be a health person and there always has to be, you know, a, an earth scientist, a climate scientist. There always has to be someone who specializes in communication because the best climate scientists and the best epidemiologists may not be very conversant in communicating their science. There has to be a policy person. There has to be a business person. I mean, you mentioned, uh, I mean, there's, you mentioned farmers. Of course, farmers are feeling the effects of climate change. So are business leaders. Goldman Sachs just made a huge announcement about an investment in climate. I mean, this is a, this is a very transdisciplinary issue. Everyone is impacted. We just need to all talk. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think people like us who, um, uh, you say we're the glue that and the uh, the tendons that hold hold the disciplines together, and I, I think of it as joining the dots. I think we have a real role to play in bringing these together. And I was, um, and I must say, I'm very very pleased that we, you know, over one of our um, conspiracy coffees, said, you know, what we're going to do is make sure that every candidate for the presidential election, regardless of poli- political affiliation. What's your stance on climate? What's your stance on climate change, and what's your stance on global health? So um, I'm I'm really really looking forward to uh, to working with you on this. Now, in a minute, we're going to take a short break and come back with one of the uh, the politicians that you've been very excited about, and someone who's running an extraordinarily interesting campaign. But I really wanted to ask one final question to you, um, and it's something that has bothered the. Uh, public health movement extremely. Um, and it must be something that is, is at the f- forefront of your mind as a parent. And that is the naysayers around the uh, the vaccine, the MMR. And and this has been an example where the global health movement has not done a god, not done a really good job of engaging communities and getting them to understand the science. What do you think the lessons are for the broader environmental movement? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're making me realize when I was talking about electing health champions, electing climate champions, the, the piece I left out is electing science champions, right? Pro-science candidates. Maybe that's, I mean, we just really need to reframe this. Um, I Look, as a scientist, I, I we need more scientists making decisions. I mean, I, I think about, I think about how the EPA sets policy on regulating methane emissions, right? What does that mean? The EPA isn't some neb- there's a person in charge, right? I mean, the right. person was appointed by a person who was elected. I mean, these are all just yeah. people. And it's just how much do you value science? How much do you understand science? I mean, how, what role does it play? I mean, vaccines is a perfect example. And how much do you value not getting sick? I really value that. I think a lot of people do. Interestingly, a lot of people seem to place more value on how their wallet is affected. 
I mean, the good thing about climate solutions is that we can get sick less and save a lot of money, right, by cleaning right. up the <clears throat> air pollution and that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's really kind of win-win. And when you look at policy ideas like the fee and dividend, you know, you have a price on yep. pollution, which it's insane that there's no price on pollution. And then Americans get a monthly check, right? So mm -hmm. you end up you end up looking pretty good. I mean, I th I really it's just the theme is science and valuing science and how has it become devalued in in our culture? I, I really don't know. But, you know, most reasonable people still value scientists. Yeah. I mean, value mm -hmm. science, listen to scientists. One interesting thing was at the AGU conference, governor, former governor of California, Jerry Brown was there and he was pleading with the largest room I've ever seen him. Tens of, I mean, just clearly thousands of PhD scientists pleading, do more, do more. Mm. People listen to you. You have a PhD next to your name. I mean, do more. Whatever you're doing, it's not enough. That's a direct quote. Yeah. Well, and that's really for us as well. We all have to do more. Well, Eliza, thank you very much thank for being you. on the show. We're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Dr. Hiral Tipinini, who is, well, both a doctor and she's running for Congress in the great state of Arizona. Well, welcome back to this episode of A Shot in the Arm podcast with Eliza Nemza. Uh, and Eliza and I are now joined by Dr. Hiral Tipanini, who is a Democratic candidate for Arizona District 6. So, Hiral, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank and, you for having me. And I know that Eliza, well, and I are very committed to bringing to the fore candidates that are pro-fact, pro-science. Um, but uh, it would be wonderful to know how, how you and uh, Eliza got to know each other. Well, uh, again, thank you for having me, and it's great to be here with Eliza as well. Um, you know, my, my background is medicine. I was a former emergency medicine physician and have also been working in cancer research advocacy for many years. Uh, so obviously, my background is science, and uh, I had the pleasure of uh, connecting with Eliza um, in my last congressional race um, through the organization of 314, which is a fantastic organization that supports candidates uh, that come from STEM backgrounds that are running for public office, which uh, we really have a paucity of those backgrounds in D.C. right now, actually at all levels of, of elected office. So to have more folks who are you know trained and educated in science, technology, engineering, medicine, math, we need more of that, and I'm I'm proud to be have have been endorsed by the 314 organization, and I know uh, Eliza is a, a great supporter and an advocate for them as well. So, been thrilled to have her support. Yeah, um, and and Eliza, I mean, you have been instrumental in identifying candidates from the global health side and helping me in my advocacy. Uh, what was so special about Hero? Well, I mean, there aren't that many doctors who are running for Congress. I mean, that's a that's a big deal. We don't have we don't have enough, as she was saying. And I, I mean, my first uh, I first her race was on my radar when it was a special election. Right. So there was practically nothing else going on at the time. Whoa! all of a sudden there's a special election in Arizona. There's a doctor running for office, you know, who's been a cancer research advocate. Um, so I actually hosted a phone banking party at my house. Um, it was lovely. I had, you know, friends and relatives come over and make phone calls on your behalf. And we were all fired up and we all did our research and had our talking points. So we were, I was excited that, to organize for you having never met and then ultimately excited to have a chance to talk and connect. 
Thank you so much for all that hard work. Yeah. We were thrilled with the progress we made. Yeah. And well, but this time you're going to win. <clears throat> Absolutely. We're going to get it right. to the finish line, yes. So here, are, here, here we are, an episode talking about the linkages between uh, climate and global health. And I guess you're in the center of that for so many reasons, <laughs> being a doctor, but being in, in Arizona. Uh, mm -hmm. What thoughts would you have for us as we try and make those connections? And, and particularly as we try and reach out to people who vote, so people mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, I think it's really about uh, realizing that none of these issues exist in a vacuum. There's so much connection between uh, the issue of healthcare, the issue of climate, education. All of those are very interconnected. And certainly Arizona, uh, look, we see the extremes of weather, of, of climate issues, of extreme uh, heat and so forth that impact people's lives on a daily basis. Uh, whether it's extreme heat. And and mind you, we're a state where we have a lot of elderly population. We have a lot of retirees. Uh, we have a lot of, obviously, young families and children. Uh, diseases like asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cystic fibrosis, cardiovascular illnesses, all of those are impacted by extremes of, of the environment, pollution, heat, uh, and so forth. And, um, and also how it impacts resources, right? Obviously, we're a state that is in a perpetual drought. Mm -hmm. um, so water conservation and, and water access, uh, those are all very life and death issues. So I can't talk about health without talking about climate. And you can't talk about climate without talking about health. And that's just within our state. And obviously that grows exponentially when you're talking about across the country and the globe. How, how do you feel we build resilient communities in such an environment, say where you know your state is under threat from drought mm -hmm. constantly, uh, but you also have to deal with a rapidly changing healthcare environment. Mm -hmm. I think it's about really building a coalition of support uh, from the various um, entities. I mean, again, this has an economic impact, right? So you have to get the, the business community engaged and invested and understand what is at stake for them as well. You have to have education um, resources. So obviously the academic community and, you know, are, those folks have to be part of the process because education is a big part of this, um, as well as the healthcare communities, as well as, uh, uh, you know, social justice organizations and so forth. I think they have to come together because it's not a matter of if, it's a mm -hmm. matter of when. It's going to impact everybody if it hasn't already and the only way we can build that resilience is if everybody feels fully invested. And it's not something that uh, we can take for granted. Um, I think if, if you do, it's really a position of your own privilege, and that privilege is eventually going to run out. Uh, but when you look at communities in Arizona, for example, we have rural areas of the state, we have tribal lands in the state, those are disproportionately affected by these issues. And uh, we can't neglect that, um, because we're in our own little bubble in, in the metropolis area, <clears throat> we have to be attentive because eventually that is going to encroach on everybody's life. It's very interesting you say that because uh, I, I think for the global health movement, we think of ourselves in a bubble and we face exactly those things, rural issues versus um, urban issues, uh, indigenous Native American issues. And that's going to be an episode that we'll, we'll, we'll come on to in the show in, in the future. Um, I, I suppose and it's, it's a, a question uh, for you, Eliza. Um, again, how do we make connections with voters right now to say pro-fact, pro-science, pro- 
climate realism is is essential now. We are already in the midst of a crisis. How do we persuade people? We do our best to subdue the partisan politics that have poisoned this issue. I mean, this should not be a partisan issue. And we talk about the aspects that aren't partisan, like health. And, you know, we talk about the fact that we all of our health is already affected. I mean, it's here. It's now. It's getting a lot worse. There's something we can do about it. You know, a clean energy economy is going to have huge benefits for our health, our family's health, our friends' health, future generations. I mean, just think about future generations. Um, so, yeah, we just need to we need to be clever and strategic about talking about this issue and not in the partisan framework. We, we just it, this has to be a bipartisan thing. And, and, and this, this identity politics has no place here. Identity yes. politics has no place here. I mean, there's no way we're not smart enough to find a better way to talk about this stuff. I mean, that's a strat to try to make this a partisan issue was a strategy that worked. And now we need to undo that. That was yeah. damn. That was damaging, you know. And that and who did the damage? You know, people who stand to gain from oil, the success of the oil and gas industry. I mean, it's just a money game. Yeah. Um, well, I think well, the lesson. We, oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say you raised an excellent point because the reason it has become so partisan, which I mean, science, facts, health, as you said, those are not partisan issues. Yeah. We have special interest groups that are in the way, right? We have fossil fuel industry. Um, folks that are in the way of us addressing this honestly and being very clear about the facts. And, you know, uh, a race like mine where I'm running against somebody who is not just a climate denier, but continues to take money from a fossil fuel industry. Obviously, like you mentioned about connecting the dots, you can connect the dots mm. to where they get their support. This is not a partisan issue. It is a human issue. It is a ticking time bomb. We are all going to be impacted if we haven't already. And, uh, and thank you for that. And I was just going to dive in and say, you know, on the global ho global health uh, uh, level, we've been really lucky to have bipartisan support. And the U.S. support for the uh, investment into the global fund for this coming year is it is at exactly the level that we wanted. And we got that because we had bipartisan support. Hirol, there's one final question I have for you. Um, uh, and um, I would be remiss if I didn't encourage our viewers and listeners to go to heroforcongress.com. But one of the things I loved was you really raised the importance of sexual and reproductive rights and the, the rights of women. And I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about how that, how much of an important issue that is in your campaign. Well, when you talk about healthcare, you have, I mean, it's comprehensive. So you have to include reproductive healthcare in there. Uh, otherwise, it's not comprehensive health care. It's just like including mental health care and so forth. And look, uh, as a physician, as an ER physician, I have uh, had the experience of caring for women who have had to make very difficult, heartbreaking decisions about, uh, you know, a, a pregnancy that, that for whatever reason was not going to go to full term. And uh, it, it is painful. It is heartbreaking. It is incredibly personal. Um, and those decisions should be between a woman and her physician and her partner. And there's no room for a, a politician or DC or a government in that uh, in that space. Um, and it should be based on medical science. It should be based on facts. That's how we should make all of these decisions related to healthcare and so forth. 
And so that's something that's very vital uh, to my healthcare plan. And and I'm so I'm thrilled and honored to have the support of Planned Parenthood mm-hmm. nationally, as well as NARAL, that uh, they do the important work of making sure we have smart legislation in our uh, that's working on behalf of women. And as we know, this is another issue of 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 civil rights, of economic rights, of 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 justice, because we know that again, it'll be disproportionately impactful mm-hmm. to communities, uh, communities of color rural communities, uh, less educated, less resourceful communities. And uh, we can't neglect that when we're making legislation. And uh, if I can just add one quick point about, you know, yesterday was a big day. We were we learned that we were able to invest $25 million in research at the CDC and NIH for gun violence. Yeah. It's another great example of how to effectively address a public health crisis using facts and data and an evidence-based approach. It's not partisan. It's based in, in you know, yes. factual data. Yes. So that was a, a really big accomplishment, and I could not be uh, more happy about that. And obviously, that's the same approach we should be taking for all of these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Science-based, uh, rooted in data. Um, uh, well, I'm just really grateful that you were able to spend some time with us. Uh, Eliza, thank you so much Pleasure. for bringing Hiral in to uh, meet with us. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I guess you both are a shot in the arm. <clears throat> and I got to say, good luck with the campaign. We'll be watching and supporting you from here. And thank uh, you. if there's anything we can do, please don't hesitate to let us know. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. And it was great to, yeah. to see you and finally meet you in person. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Well, that's it for this week. Hope you've enjoyed our show. Thank you to our guests, Liza Nemza and Hiral Tipanini. Thanks also to the NewsDoc Media team for making the magic happen. To Eric Espera, our director, Jacob Phillips and Brian Ragas. And finally, thanks to you. As always, let us know if you have any comments on this or any other show. And if you have thoughts on subjects you'd like us to cover or guests you'd like to see or hear on the show. Thank you for being a shot in the arm and have a great week.